This is section 85 of Mark Twain, a biography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, a biography. Volume 1, part 2, 1866 to 1875. Chapter 85, A Birth, A Death, and A Voyage. The year 1872 was an eventful one in Mark Twain's life. At Almira, on March 19th, his second child, a little girl, whom they named Susan Olivia, was born. On June 2nd, in the new home in Hartford, to which they had recently moved, his first child, a little boy, Langdon, died. He had never been strong, his wavering life had often been uncertain, all was more of the spirit than the body, and in Elmira he contracted a heavy cold, or perhaps it was diphtheria from the beginning. In later years, whenever Clemens spoke of the little fellow, he never failed to accuse himself of having been the cause of the child's death. It was Mrs. Clemens' custom to drive out each morning with Langdon, and once, when she was unable to go, Clemens himself went instead. "'I should not have been permitted to do it,' he said, remembering. "'I was not qualified for any such responsibility as that. Someone should have gone who had at least the rudiments of a mind. Necessarily I would lose myself dreaming. After a while the coachman looked around and noticed that the carriage robes had dropped away from the little fellow, and that he was exposed to the chilly air. He called my attention to it, but it was too late. Tonsillitis, or something of the sort, set in, and he did not get any better. So we took him to Hartford. There it was pronounced diphtheria, and, of course, he died. So, with or without reason, he added the blame of another tragedy to the heavy burden of remorse which he would go on piling up while he lived. The blow was a terrible one to Mrs. Clemens. Even the comfort of the little new baby on her arm could not ease the ache in her breast. It seemed to her that death was pursuing her. In one of her letters she says, I feel so often as if my path is to be lined with graves and she expresses the wish that she may drop out of life herself before her sister and her husband, a wish which the years would grant. They did not return to Elmira, for it was thought that the air of the shore would be better for the little girl, so they spent the summer at Saybrook, Connecticut, at Fenwick Hall, leaving Orion and his wife in charge of the house at Hartford. Beyond a few sketches, Clemens did very little literary work that summer, but he planned a trip to Europe, and he invented what is still known and sold as the Mark Twain Scrapbook. He wrote to Orion of his proposed trip to England, and dilated upon his scrapbook with considerable enthusiasm. The idea had grown out of the inconvenience of finding a paste jar, and the general mussiness of scrapbook keeping. His new plan was a self-pasting scrapbook, with the gum laid on in narrow strips, requiring only to be damped with a sponge or other moist substance to be ready for the clipping. He states that he intended to put the invention into the hands of Sloat, Woodman, and Company, 
of whom Dan Sloat, his old Quaker City roommate, was the senior partner, and have it manufactured for the trade. About this time began Mark Twain's long and active interest in copyright. Previously he had not much considered the subject. He had taken it for granted there was no step that he could take while international piracy was a recognized institution. On both sides of the water books were appropriated, often without profit, sometimes even without credit, to the author. To tell the truth, Clemens had at first regarded it rather in the nature of a compliment that his books should be thought worth pirating in England, but as time passed he realized that he was paying heavily for this recognition. Furthermore, he decided that he was forfeiting a right, rather than he was being deprived of it, something which it was in his nature to resent. When Roughing It had been ready for issue, he agreed with Bliss that they should try the experiment of copywriting it in England, and see how far the law would protect them against the voracious little publisher, who thus far had not only snapped up everything bearing Mark Twain's signature, but had included in a volume of Mark Twain's sketches certain examples of very weak humor with which Mark Twain had been previously unfamiliar. Whatever the English pirate's opinion of the copyright protection of roughing it may have been, he did not attempt to violate it. This was gratifying. Clemens came to regard England as a friendly power. He decided to visit it and spy out the land. He would make the acquaintance of its people and institutions and write a book which would do these things justice. He gave out no word of his real purpose. He merely said that he was going over to see his English publishers, and perhaps to arrange for a few lectures. He provided himself with some stylographic notebooks, by which he could produce two copies of his daily memoranda, one for himself and one to mail to Mrs. Clemens, and sailed on the Scotia, August 21, 1872. Arriving in Liverpool, he took train for London, and presently the wonderful charm of that old, finished country broke upon him. His first hour in England was an hour of delight, he records, of rapture and ecstasy. These are the best words I can find, but they are not adequate. They are not strong enough to convey the feeling which this first vision of rural England brought me. Then he noticed that the gentleman opposite in his compartment paid no attention to the scenery, but was absorbed in a green-covered volume. He was so absorbed in it that, by and by, Clemens's curiosity was aroused. He shifted his position a little, and his eye caught the title. It was the first volume of the English edition of the innocents abroad. This was gratifying for a moment. Then he remembered that the man had never laughed, never even smiled during the hour of his steady reading. Clemens recalled what he had heard of the English lack of humor. He wondered if this was a fair example of it, and if the man could be really taking seriously every word he was reading. Clemens could not look at the scenery any more for watching his fellow passenger waiting with a fascinated interest for the paragraph that would break up that iron-clad solemnity. It did not come. During all the rest of the trip to London the atmosphere of the compartment remained heavy 
with gloom. He drove to the Langham Hotel, always popular with Americans, established himself, and went to look up his publishers. He found the Routledges about to sit down to luncheon in a private room upstairs in their publishing house. He joined them, and not a soul stirred from that table again until evening. The Routledges had never heard Mark Twain talk before, never heard anyone talk who in the least resembled him. Various refreshments were served during the afternoon, came and went, while this marvelous creature talked on and they listened, reveling and wondering if America had any more of that sort at home. By and by dinner was served, then after a long time, when there was no further excuse for keeping him there, they took him to the Savage Club, where there were yet other refreshments and a gathering of the clans to welcome this new arrival as a being from some remote and unfamiliar star. Tom Hood, the younger, was there, and Harry Lee, and Stanley the Explorer, who had but just returned from finding Livingston, and Henry Irving, and many another whose name remains, though the owners of those names are all dead now, and their laughter and their good fellowship are only a part of that intangible fabric which we call the past. Clemens had first known Stanley as a newspaper man. I first met him when he reported a lecture of mine in St. Louis, he said once in a conversation where the name of Stanley was mentioned. End of chapter 85 A Birth, a Death, and a Voyage Read by John Greenman